0: Thank you, Becky and Jessica. Take your Bibles, turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 4 this morning. If you're in first through third grade and you'd like to take part in our children's service, you can slip out at this time. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. If you're visiting with us, take your Bible, go to the middle, and then go a little bit further towards the end, and you'll run across the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Which is better? Please don't say anything out loud for the sake of risking church unity. Ford or Chevy? It's a tough one. PlayStation or Xbox, kids. Apple or Android? Coke or Pepsi? basketball or football which is better steak or chicken day at the beach or day in the mountains if we were to take a poll no doubt there would be many different opinions shared on these topics when you ask the question which is better The passage before us, Ecclesiastes chapter 4 verse 1, all the way down through chapter 5 and verse 7, gives us a series of five practical truths with a better than statement. The sermon this morning is probably going to be one of the most practical, down-to-earth sermons that I've ever preached here at Community. It's very simple. This passage is very simple. Ecclesiastes is a wisdom book, and it's begun with kind of some philosophical wisdom of vanity and these concepts of futility and looking at uh, the philosophy of life and where you're going to find joy. And then Solomon just kind of takes the plane and he lands it on the everyday life here in chapters 4 and the beginning of chapter 5. And he just gives you a series of proverbial truths with the statement, this is better than that. And these statements aren't up for debate. Sure, we can debate which is better, LeBron or Michael Jordan, right? We can sit here and debate that. Really, there is no debate, but we could, if you wanted to, sit here and debate that opinion. We could sit here and debate whether coffee or tea is better for you in the morning. We could sit here and debate whether you're going to kill yourself at McDonald's or Burger King. You know, just depends on which one. Which one do you like better? All of these different things, we could sit here and we can debate, this is better than that. I have an Apple iPhone, I have an Android, I have this, I have that. We go back and forth and back and forth. When we come to our scripture today, there is no debate because Solomon is going to give you five statements of this is better than that. If you have your... Bible journals, or you write in your Bible, I would like you to circle every time the word better is mentioned. There are several ways you could break down this passage. I've chosen to break it down with what I believe is Solomon's five proverbial statements here. The first one is found in verse three, but better than both, if you want to circle that, chapter four and verse three. Chapter four and verse six, better is. Chapter nine, uh, chapter four and verse nine, Two are better than one. Chapter 4 and verse 13, better was a poor and wise youth. And then chapter 5 and verse 1, to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. I have you circle those because we're going to read through the entire passage. And I want to help you as much as possible trace through the passage as we read it so you understand Solomon's arguments when he gives you practical wisdom advice for this world. So let's pray and ask God's blessing and God's illumination on this passage, and then we'll read. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd bless the sermon, that you'd bless the passage before us this morning. We pray that it would be well with our soul as we seek to find our rest in you, and that you would give great illumination to understand your word this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Chapter 4 and verse 1 of Ecclesiastes. Again I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive, but better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun." Then I saw all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool holds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again I saw vanity under the sun, that's futility, that's that's emptiness, it's a breath. One person who has no other, either son or brother, and yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never even asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil, for if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A three cord, threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who had no longer, no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, and along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place? There was no end to all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and striving after wind. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. They do not know what they're doing; that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. Here's another one in verse 5. It is better that you should not vow than than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. Five proverbial truths that we'll look at this morning. Each one a better than statement. Let's look at verses 1 through 5 to begin in chapter four, all these points are gonna be very simple, okay? Very simple. None of them are debated. Point number one hopefully, you don't debate this one good is better than evil. Very simple. Good is better than evil. Believe it or not, you actually face this issue on a daily basis. Is it better to hide the truth? And be a little bit deceptive and get that promotion at work? Or is it better to be open and truthful and risk getting the promotion? Is it better to fudge the numbers just a little bit on my taxes? And God, I'll give some to the church, right? Or is it better to be truthful? Is it okay and do I still want to do what's right even if I get into trouble? Am I still willing to side with the truth? to side with good, to side with righteousness, or do the ends justify the means? And Solomon tells us, using the illustration of the oppression, of the sinfulness of this world, to reveal to us that good is always better than evil. His whole point in these verses is to remind us that sin ruins everything. That this world was created... As a perfect garden of Eden. And sin came in and with it brought oppression, envy. And so he brings out in verses 1 through 3 the evils of oppression. He paints a terrible picture of the oppression and suffering of this world. That sin brings with it the oppression of the weak. The persecution of righteousness by those who are in power. He recognizes that it's, this world is so full of sin that it's better to have never been born than to experience the evil and oppression of this world. Friends, if you've been through hardship, that thought has come across your mind. It's better, it's better that I would have never been born. Didn't Job struggle with that same concept? Cursed be the day of my birth. If, if this is what life entails in suffering, then I wish I would have never been born because it would be better than what I'm going through now. Now be careful here. Solomon is in no way endorsing suicide, infanticide, or abortion in any way. He's using hyperbole to show us and reveal to us how bad this world is and how God's people should stand in contrast to it. Sin has affected this world, all of this world. The weak are oppressed by the powerful. The world is full of injustice, cheating, scandal, immorality, and abuse. That's why we have jokes about used car salesmen, right? Cover up the problems, put a nice coat of paint on it. It'll break down in a week, but boy, have I got a deal for you. Scandals, cheating. Not all used car salesmen are like that, but that's why jokes like that exist is because this world is full of that. To make matters even worse, the world celebrates their sin. Seeing rebellion against God as a victory and a win. Satan is a master of turning and twisting the truth into something vile and evil. We've seen a great illustration of this in our culture in the last several months. With the governor of California putting up billboards in the state of Indiana supporting abortion, and then supporting his view on abortion by quoting the scripture. The billboard says that you have a choice as to whether or not you're going to should kill your baby, which is not true. And then at the bottom, the quote is given Mark 12 31 love your neighbor as yourself. But for some reason, there's missing love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The celebration of evil good and good evil, that's the sinful state of this world, but it should not shock us. When sinful people act like sinful people, you shouldn't go, whoa, I didn't expect this. When sinners look for satisfaction somewhere other than Christ, it shouldn't take us back. Scripture said this was going to happen. 2 Timothy chapter 3, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go from bad to worst, deceiving and being deceived. You don't know how bad it's going to get. Every generation since Paul has thought they were living in the last days. Is this the last days? Yes. Is Jesus right around the corner? Yes. What does that mean? I don't know. But your parents said it, and your grandparents said it. How much worse can it get? It can get much worse. And church history has shown this to us. Worse and worse, but as for you, 2 Timothy 3.14, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, Paul tells Timothy. What's our response to living in a world that's waxing worse and worse? Where good is called evil and evil is called good. What is our response? To take up pitchforks? No. To know God and represent him accurately to this world. I heard testimony this week of two pastors who were pastoring in Afghanistan when Afghanistan fell this year, last year. Just months earlier, they and their wives had made the decision to go to the local authorities because on their ID cards, which would be like our driver's license, it has to state a religion. And they were convicted because their religion stated that they were Muslim, even though they have been converted to Christianity for many years, even serving as elders in the house churches there. So they went and they officially changed their license. Before going, they knelt down and prayed with their children and said, this may be the last day of our lives. Can things get worse? Yes, they can get worse. They made the switch. The government asked them three times, are you sure you want to do this? Are you sure you want to do this? Are you sure you want to do this? When the government fell, they had to leave the country Because groups were actively seeking them, knowing their address, knowing where they live, to kill them and their children. Evil, good, good, evil. What is the response of that pastor? The interviewer asked the question, do you hate them? And he said, no. I hate the false god they serve. But I don't hate them. How can you hate someone who's enslaved, who's made in the image of God? I pray for them. What is your responsibility in a culture that's waxing from bad to worse? Know God and represent him accurately in this world. That's your responsibility. Know the scripture. Align yourself with scripture. The life of the child of God is called to stand in total contrast to the sinful oppression of this world. We're called to live lives of love, of mercy, of grace. And then Solomon gives an illustration of what this sin and oppression looks like beginning in verse 4. I saw this evil being worked out in this way. Look at verse 4. All the toil and the skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. Envy. Strife. We could go, I gave you one illustration of wickedness and sin being prevalent in this culture. Envy is one that Solomon runs to in his wisdom. He says he sees the sinfulness and oppression of this world worked out when when someone looks at someone else who is skillful and successful in what they're doing, and they look at them with envy rather than celebrating them. What is envy? Envy is responding in anger and covetousness when someone has something that you do not. We're going to see it evidenced here in about a month and a half around the Christmas tree, where one child perhaps gets a gift that another child wanted. Envy, anger. Why did you get that? Why did you get that promotion? I can't believe they did that for him. Why does everything always seem to go right for that person? Rather than a celebration. Let me ask you a question How do you respond when others succeed around you and get what you want? Do you wish them harm and failure? Are you genuinely happy for them? Are you able to rejoice with those who rejoice? Listen to this proverb, Proverbs 14.30. A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. I was talking with a staff member this week. and We both commented on the subject that envy is often said and jealousy is like drinking poison and hoping the other person will die. No one is more miserable than the person who thinks that they have to succeed to the detriment of everyone else around them. And so I'm going to put them down in order to build me up. That's envy. It's looking and saying, if I can't succeed, you shouldn't succeed either. And when you do, I get upset about it. That is the response of a sinful world. 1 Corinthians 12, 26, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. It's so hard, isn't it? It's hard to walk up with someone in in, in the right way and with a genuine heart, look at them and shake their hand and say, I'm so happy for you. Isn't that hard? That's why we just don't do it. Look at somebody and say, man, I wanted that, but I, I am so glad that you got it. I'm so happy for you, genuinely rejoicing in you. It's the response the Christian should have. What is the antidote for envy? There are many antidotes for envy. One is repentance and confession, right? Confess and repent. As we work out our lives, Solomon in his wisdom gives a very interesting one that I don't think I would have. If you would have come to me and said, hey, I'm struggling with envy, what should I do about it? I don't think I would have given this, but the Holy Spirit records it, and so let's use this as the antidote given for us. What is it? It's a very weird verse. It's a proverbial statement. Look at verse 5. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. What in the world is that talking about? It means a lazy person has nothing to eat but himself. His body ends up consuming itself because he has no food. In other words, don't be lazy. Work hard. Rather than looking at everyone else who's succeeding, you focus on working harder. You focus on doing what's right, work hard to the glory of God. It's, it's, it's the, the Old Testament version of the proverbial statement in the New Testament, if you don't work, you shouldn't eat. Rather than looking around at those and envying them, focus on your own effort for the glory of God. Focus on your own work so that you can show everyone that God is a God of order and God is a God of excellence. 1 Timothy 5.8, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Whoa, it's a harsh statement, true statement, strong. Work hard, be excellent and true in your business dealings. Good is better than evil. Number two, contentment is better than riches. Contentment is better than riches. Look at verse 6. There's so many quotes in Ecclesiastes that people use today. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. I saw a breath on this earth. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there's no end with all this toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure. This also is vanity and an unhappy business. I'm storing up bigger and better barns. Why? So I can have more. Why? So I can have more. Why? So I can die and leave it to everyone else. It's an unhappy business when you come to recognize that. More and more and more. Let me ask you a question. Do you have a peaceful life? Would you consider your life as a handful of peace or two handfuls of toil? It's important that this comes on the, on the back of work hard for the glory of God, right? This isn't a, a, an okay for laziness, an approval of, of not working hard. But it's saying, are you content with what you have or are you constantly striving for what's next, never happy? How much is enough? What do you actually need to be happy. Stuff doesn't bring contentment. Stuff doesn't bring happiness. I've never met anybody, and I've sat with many on the, who are on their deathbed, and what they were saying was, you know what I wish? I wish I would have had a bigger house. I just, if I could do it all over again, I wish I would have had better toys. If I could do my whole life over again, I wish I would have just bought more stuff. That's not what happens when the perspective of, is given at the end of life. an exercise quickly, okay? I want you to think back on your life, and I want you to think about one thing in your life that you wanted for a long time, and you finally got, okay? Think about that. Take a step back in your life, and think through what's something that I, whether it was a new car that came out, whether it was a house, whether it was a spouse, whether whatever it was, Think of something that you wanted for so long and you looked forward to. Maybe you saved up for it. Maybe it was out of your control. But you wanted it for so long and then you finally got it. And then ask this question. Did it provide what I thought it was going to provide for me? That's what Solomon wants you to see here. He wants you to recognize That contentment is not about owning things. Rather than looking to the accumulation of riches to provide happiness and purpose in your life, you need to find contentment in wherever God has placed you. Not that I'm speaking of respect of need in Philippians 4, 11-12. I have learned in whatever situation I am therewith to be content. Paul says, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need, contentment. And then he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's not meant to be written on a basketball shoe. It's meant to be said, you can be content. You can do it. Because God will give you the strength to recognize that wherever you are right now is exactly where God wants you to be and you need to be content with that. Some of you are married and you want to be single again. Some of you are single and you want to be married. Some of you are old and you want to be young. Some of you are young and you want to be old. Some of you have straight hair and you want to have curly hair. Some of you are like Chuck and you have no hair, right? That's okay. If, you're not, if, you, if you haven't been with us for very long for VBS every year, We tell the kids that Chuck got too excited because VBS was coming and lost all of his hair. So, all of us have areas in our life where you're like, oh, man, I wish it was different, right? I wish I just had or I wish I didn't have. I wish it was like. The goal or your journey to contentment has nothing to do with your possessions, Your journey to contentment has everything to do with your relationship with Christ. If you are discontent, it's because you don't know God well enough. We decided we were going to watch Little House on the Prairie with our kids. And we got about, probably about 10 episodes in and they had the Little House on the Prairie Christmas episode where the Mom and dad bring home the Christmas gifts, and the children sit, and they unwrap the gifts, and they are so excited because they got two peppermint sticks and a tin cup. And one of my children said, Dad, can we turn this off? This is really depressing. <laughs> yeah. They were so happy. Friend, you want to fix your discontentment, take some money in your bank account, buy a plane ticket to visit one of our missionaries in a third world country, and I want you to go live with them for a week. And I want you to every day minister to the people they are ministering to. And then I want you to come back home and I want you to stand in your front yard and I want you to look at your house and look at your stuff and realize that contentment is not based on stuff. Your eyes will never be satisfied with riches. I'd like to recommend a short read for you. It's actually free online. It's a PDF. It's, it's, a, it's I think it was actually a sermon that was transcribed into this short little book. You can get it in print if you want. You can order it off Amazon. It's entitled The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment by Jeremiah Burroughs. I read that book many years ago and it's forever been imprinted on my mind. At the end of this little handbook, this little sermon, Burroughs offers applications and conclusions to answer the question, how do I attain contentment? It's a, it's a beautiful read. Okay, it was written a little while ago, so it's got some words that you may not know, but it's good for you. It'll stretch, stretch you. But go online, take your iPad, your phone, whatever, download the PDF, and just start reading it. The rare jewel of Christian contentment. He offers many of these applications. I want to read for you just three and I've abbreviated them, but these are so good, okay? How do I attain contentment? Listen to this. We should consider in all our wants and inclinations to discontentment the greatness of the mercies that we have and the insignificance of the things that we lack, right? Because discontentment says the opposite. What I have isn't enough. What I don't have is what I need. And he says, reverse that and look at everything you already have before you buy anything else, go to the storage shed that you rent every month and open it up, okay? For the most part, the things that we want are such things that the unsaved have. Like, my wealth is not so great, my health is not so perfect, my credit is not so much. You may have all those things and still be a sinner. Shall I be discontent for not having that? When God has given me what make the angels sing. That's the kind of stuff you need to be reading. Get off social media and pick up this, right? Number two, consider that we have but a little time in this world if you're struggling with discontentment. If you are godly, you'll never suffer except in this world. As that martyr said to his fellow martyr, do but shut your eyes and the next time they're opened, you shall be in another world. All afflictions and troubles will soon be at an end. Third one, do not promise yourselves too much beforehand. In other words, don't set your expectations too high. Do not soar too high in your thoughts beforehand to think, oh, if I had this, and oh, and I have that, and imagine great matters to yourself. But be as Jacob. You know, he was a man who lived a very contented life in a simple condition. And he said, if God will give me bread to eat and raiment to put on. So if we would not cast our thoughts high and think that we might have what others have, we would not be troubled so much when we meet with disappointments. What he's saying is lower your expectations. And, and it goes. it's so good because it goes on and on and on like that. It's a beautiful piece of writing that comes from a different time when they didn't have air conditioning and they didn't have cars and their clothes weren't comfortable and they didn't have refrigerators, right? And all of these things, the rare jewel of Christian contentment. You show me somebody who's content in this life and I'll show you someone who knows their God deeply because they recognize that God has provided everything for them. It's vanity in this life. It's striving after the wind to catch the wind. I think the King James says vexation of spirit. It's striving and chasing wind to try to attain things to make me happy. Joy in this life comes when you know Christ and you look like Christ. Number three, two are better than one. Where'd you get that? Verse nine, two are better than one. (laughs) Right there. That's what he says. Two are better than one. Than one. Genesis 218, God announces it's not good for man to be alone. Man was never meant to live by himself. It's not God's plan that you would live in solitary confinement and isolation for the rest of your life. There's a series on the History Channel called Alone. People dropped off in the middle of nowhere with just a few survival tools. And, and they're dropped off in, in areas with bears and, and they're dropped off in the Arctic with wolves and all these things, right? And they can choose 10 items and they take it with them. They survive as long as they can and the person who survives the longest gets a bunch of money, whatever it is. What is the number one thing that sends people home? It's not injury, although that does happen every once in a while. It's not a lack of food, although it does happen every once in a while. What's the number one thing that sends people home? Loneliness. I didn't know how much I would miss my friends. I didn't know how much I would miss my family. Why? Because Solomon points out in verses 9 through 12 that you need others for three specific things. Number one, restoration, verse 10. Number two, comfort in verse 11. And number three, protection in verse 12. And I've heard this passage referenced in dating relationships or, or marriages. Maybe you've been to a wedding where the preacher has, has read this passage. Two are better than one. And it works really well until you get to the very end of verse 12 that says, a threefold cord is not quickly broken. And you're like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. <laughs> whoa, hang on a second. <laughs> this must not be talking about marriage, and it's not. Although that could be. Maybe an application, a side application of it, but that's not what this is talking about. Let's read verses 9 through 12. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? These are all proverbial statements. And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him, because a threefold cord is not quickly broken. In other words, two is good, but three is better. And that is not true in marriage or dating relationships. Two is good, three is better. This passage is letting you know that you need other Christians in your life. You are not strong enough to do it on your own. You are meant to live in a community of Christians. You are meant for Christian fellowship. And so now we have a question, where am I going to find that? And God's answer is, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You find this hope, you find this comfort, you find this love, you find this fellowship. Right here, friends, this is your village, this is your group, this is your spiritual family. We have covenanted together to keep each other accountable. We have covenanted together to live life with each other, to comfort. I've said often, I've seen dear friends go through some of the most terrible things, and I'll look over and I'll tell Becky, I cannot imagine suffering without the church, I can't imagine going through hardships and not having dear brothers and sisters to help hold you up. I can't imagine spiritual celebrations and having no one to share it with or needing comfort and not knowing where to turn. You need the church and the church needs you. The church is not a building church is not an event. The church is people, friends. And you need the church, and we need you. These three aspects that Solomon gives us are best found in the church. The church, the local church, restores. We see that given by Solomon in verse 10, for if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. The local church restores God's heart. Friend, listen, if you're here and you've slipped, excuse me, you've jumped into sin, it's your fault, but if you stepped into sin, you're far from God. Listen to this verse. Ezekiel thirty-four sixteen. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed and I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak. The church is not a museum full of waxed figurines. The church is a hospital for the spiritually needy. And friends, we're all spiritually needy. Galatians 6.1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Gentleness. What, what does that look like? It looks like Matthew 18. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. How many times does that actually happen in church, right? This is God's process. If you have someone, something against someone or someone else sins against you, you go to them alone. And what does the passage say? If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Amen. Right? 99% of the time it's a miscommunication. That's what I found. But if he doesn't listen, take one or two others. Where do you get the others? You get them from your church along with you. So then, every charge, the evidence may be established by two or three witnesses. And if he listens to you guys, you have gained your brother. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the body. Tell it to the church. And if he listens to the church, you have gained your brother. Those second second two are implied there. You've, you've gained your brother. The goal is restoration and fellowship. But if you refuse it to listen even to the church, let it be to use Gentile and a tax collector. That's what's typically called as church discipline. People think that is the end. But it's not. It's what happens every single moment of every single day as we interact with each other. And we keep each other accountable. And if you fall, guess what? You've got people there to pick you up. And if you step into sin, you've got a whole church family that can wrap their arms around you and say, you know what, it's okay because I'm a sinner too, but we, we both worship God, so I'm going to pick you up and we're going to walk arm in arm towards Christ together. The church restores. Secondly, the local church comforts. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Blessed to be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. And it goes on and on and on. Comfort, comfort, comfort so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with we ourselves are comforted by God. Comfort your brother and sister in Christ. When you look around you and you see someone going through something that you have gone through, you know what you should do, you should press into that relationship and say, you don't know me, but I heard you've been going through this. I went through that same thing. Can we meet this week to pray together or can we meet for lunch or can we grab coffee? Can we just get together and pray Because I want to let you know I'm with you. You're not alone. The local church protects. Local church comforts in verse 11. Local church protects in verse 12. Look down at verse 12 with me. Though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Matthew seven fifteen, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Increasingly more and more, it's been this way in, in the rest of the world, but increasingly more and more in our country, we're seeing opposition to truth and opposition to the gospel. And you are not strong enough on your own. God did not create you that way. He did not intend for you to live that way. You need the church to protect you. It's the responsibility of the congregation, Second Timothy chapter four. The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching for having itching ears. they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. He's using that in a negative, saying, "Don't do that. It's the responsibility of the congregation to recognize truth when it's taught and truth when it's preached, and elevate truth and put aside error. It is also the responsibility of the pastors in the church. Acts chapter 20, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock unto which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. Why? Because after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among yourselves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. It is the responsibility of the elders of the church, the pastors of the church, to step in and to protect the congregation. And you need protecting. Don't believe everything you read. Not every author is worth reading. Not every preacher is worth listening to. And so it is the responsibility of the congregation to recognize biblical teaching, but it's also the responsibility of the elders and the pastors to protect the congregation. Where can I find spiritual protection? Not on your couch watching some guy you don't know from another city, state, or country preach. Bind yourself to a local congregation that teaches the word and find protection from the congregation and from the pastors in that church. The local church protects you, and you need it you need the church and the church needs you. Two are better than one. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Can you imagine what a church could do with hundreds unified around one message committing to comfort, protect, provide, restore each other? Number four, Wisdom is better than prominence. We're just going to five. Time's quickly leaving. Wisdom is better than prominence. You know, verses 13 through 16 are a really unique story, and you have to read it multiple times, kind of understand what he's, what he's doing there. What he's giving you is he's giving you a traditional rags-to-riches story. There's a young boy in a country who was wise in his youth, and through his wisdom and through his prudence of life, He rose in the ranks of the kingdom one day, so much so that he became became king. But when he was king, he stopped listening to counsel and became foolish. And although at the beginning of his reign, many loved following him and followed him in his leadership at the end, verse 12 says, those who come later Will not rejoice in him. This rags to riches story, Paul, Solomon gives as an illustration, as an example, as a proverbial statement to help you recognize that wisdom and position are not the same thing. There are some very foolish people in leadership, and there are some very wise people who are not in leadership. My brother served uh, several tours in Afghanistan with the army and he uh, would come home and he would often say the best thing, he, he, went to, he, was, a, he was an officer, the best thing that he could do as a lieutenant or a captain serving there was to, to pull alongside him one of the old grunts who'd been there for 20 plus years, hardened, who knew and had gained wisdom from everything and say what should I do? Don't make the decision for me, but what should I do? Because If you've lived long enough, you realize that position doesn't equal wisdom. And if you're listening and reading carefully in this passage, what does Solomon equate with wisdom? Did you pick it up? What does he equate with being wise? Learning everything? No. What does he equate with wisdom? Look at the end of verse 13. He equates wisdom with The foolish king is not wise. Why is he not wise? Because he no longer knew how to take advice. A wise person knows what they know, but they know what they don't know. And a wise person is one who seeks advice. Seeking advice and seeking wisdom is not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of strength. It's a sign of a recognition that you need wisdom because wisdom is better than prominence. Wisdom is better than position. True wisdom is not found in knowing everything. True wisdom is found in knowing where the truth is located and accessing that truth and then living your life according to it. When was the last time you realized that you didn't know everything? Let me put it another way. When was the last time that you tried to fix plumbing in your house and it took you 17 trips to Menards and a broken something to recognize that you're not a plumber? Right? And you, my dad would always say, you know, just enough to break it. It's dangerous, isn't it? There's wisdom in stepping back and saying, okay, I need other people speaking into my life. Do you know what blind spots are? Blind spots are areas in your life that are problems that you can't see. And you say, I don't have blind spots. Exactly. That's why they're called blind spots. And all of you have them. And the wise person says, help me see what I'm not seeing here. Help me in my life. Taking advice is one of the hardest things to learn. Because in order to take advice, in order for having other people speak into your life, you have to first realize that you're insufficient in something. You don't have it all together, and you don't know everything. And so you have to step back and say, I need help. Can you speak into my life in this way? I would highly recommend that you go to someone that you trust spiritually. Just just one, maybe two if you're really brave, but just one someone who knows you well, who is spiritually mature, and you have a conversation with them, and you say, I am giving you a platform to speak into my life. Will you help me? As you observe my life, will you help me in areas in which I'm not aware? When this man was a youth, he knew that he needed that, but as he gained position, he thought he didn't need it anymore, and he became a tyrant. He became foolish because he stopped taking advice. There's a word that you need to know, and it's the word approachable. Are you an approachable person? I have written down here, we don't have time. 1 Samuel 25 is an amazing story of a person who's approachable and a person who's not approachable. It's the story of Abigail, Nabal, and David. Scripture records Nabal was a churlish man, I think the King James says. That's a good old English word, isn't it? Churlish. He's a brawler. He's Uh, uh, He's—he nobody likes to be around him. He's cranky and crotchety and doesn't need anybody. And Abigail tries to go to Nabal, but she realizes that her husband's unapproachable. And so in the end, she runs to David to protect. Literally, she says, my husband's a moron. Please forgive him. Please don't kill him. And David, who had every right because of the disrespect that this man had shown his king to have him executed, stepped back. He was approachable. And he said, thank you for making me take a step back and listen to advice. And then what happened? God struck Nabal dead. God took care of it. And there comes a point in your life where you have to recognize that if people aren't coming to you, it's probably your fault. That if you, why wouldn't you speak into my life? Because every time I do, you bite my head off. Because every time I do, you come way defensive. Because every time I do, you just, and so I just stop. I told you, this is super practical. It's super basic. Wisdom is saying, man, it's hard. Come on, what else do you see? Oh, I don't see that. Must be a blind spot. This person loves me. They love God. They want me to grow. They want me to be a better believer. Lord, would you give me humility to be approachable for people to step into my life? Lastly, actions are better than words. Actions are better than words. There are a couple betters that are given in chapter 5. One's in verse 1 and one is in verse 5. In the originals, there's the, the better there in verse 1 isn't uh, in the original, but it's included in the English and help you to understand what he's saying. But it is given in verse 5 in the original. So they're talking about the same thing here. That's what I'm trying to tell you. It's talking about the same thing in verses 1 through 7. And what he's saying in verses 1 through 7 is that your walk talks and your talk talks, but your walk talks louder than your talk talks. That actions speak louder than words. Or if you want to parallel for the rest of the sermon, actions are better than words. Here are the actions he says in chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Draw near. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God to draw near. Draw near to God. It's only through a close relationship to God that you will understand life. Psalm 73 that we read this morning, I asked Ben to do that for our scripture reading and to center our worship service around because it's one of my favorite lament psalms because it's so earthy. And right in the middle, there's the teeter-totter moment where it looks like all the wickedness is winning, right? And then there's the fulcrum where he says, until I entered into the sanctuary of God. And he's not talking about A building. He's not like saying, man, the life was awful until I walked into this building and then I was great. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is until I entered into the presence of God with a relationship, until I looked at God, until my view of God became what it's supposed to be, until I beheld God and all his glory, and then all of a sudden everything made sense. Draw near to God. Read your Bible not because you have to, but because you want to. Understand that it tells you all about this amazing God who created you for his glory. Listen. Verse 1. To draw near, to listen. I don't mean to be unkind, but we say this all the time in our house, so I figured I could say it to my church family. God gave us two ears and one mouth for a reason. I heard that all the time growing up. Son, God gave you two ears and one mouth. Live like it, okay? Listen. Listen. Listen to the word of God. Friends, it's better for you to sit and listen to the word of God than to go live a foolish Christian life. You know what the number one problem is, I believe, in conservative Christianity? Is that people try to live the Christian life before they know God. And so they end up with some sort of errant Christianity that they believe is biblical, but it's actually not because they never knew God to begin with. So they think they're living the right way, they think they're doing all this stuff, but it's not even biblical. And you go, whoa, time out. I don't see that in scripture anywhere but I, was, but I was always taught and I think this is the right way to go. That's fine. You can live your life that way. Just don't call it biblical because you must first draw near and listen to the word of God. Listen. Our walk with the Lord must be based on scripture. Our proper knowledge of him must precede our obedience to him because you, you cannot accurately represent a God that you do not know. You can't look like God if you don't know God. And so getting into Scripture to draw near to him, to listen. And then he says, draw near, listen. Look at the beginning of verse 2. Do not be rash with your mouth. You're like, whoa, I told you. This is like the most practical passage ever, right? Don't be rash with your mouth. What does the word rash mean? It means to speak harshly. It means to spout out your opinion without thinking it through. Listen, draw near to God. Not only don't be rash with your mouth, but let your words be few. Let your words be few. The end of verse two. Proverbs 17, 27, 28. Whoever restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit, that's not talking about like dressing nice, that's talking about a calm spirit, is a man of understanding. Listen verse 28, I love this. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he's deemed intelligent. You say, I don't know a lot of stuff. Good, then don't talk. Just, you know, if you're having a conversation with somebody, you go, man, that is really interesting. Tell me more about that. And you have no clue what they're talking about. Man, they'll just think, man, that guy's so smart. I explained to him everything about how quantum mechanics works, and he was with me the whole time. Now, I'm thinking about sitting in a tree stand, and I'm doing this. Man, that's fascinating. And you don't say anything, right? Be quick to hear, slow to speak, listen. Pay what you vow. Don't make rash vows and promises to God that you have no intention keeping. Verses four through seven are about not bribing God. You know what bribing God is? God, if you do this for me, I'll do this for you. God, if you will get me through this medical event, I'll put you in my will. God, if you'll just do this, I'll serve you forever. For honest, I think all of us have had thoughts like that. And very often, we forget about them. Or it happens, you go, Well, God, you didn't do it exactly like I wanted. So, you know, I had this fine print at the bottom of my bribe. And it said, If you didn't do it just like I wanted, then I'm out. Don't bribe God. The Lord your God is God of gods. He's Lord of lords. The great, the mighty, and the awesome God. He is not partial and he takes no bribe. Deuteronomy ten 17. Don't just be a dreamer and a talker, lastly. Look at verse seven. When dreams increase and words grow many, there is it's vanity. Let your light shine before men. That when they see your good works, they'll glorify God. Know God, and then live for God. Don't just talk about it. Don't just dream about it. Do it. So what's conclusion? If you were to look at this simple passage from 30,000 feet, here's what Solomon is saying. God's way is better. God is better. He has outlined a plan for human flourishing, and this is part of it. If you follow him and follow his direction, it's better. When you're tempted to believe the lie that acting in a sinful way is better than acting in righteousness, don't do it. Where are you believing the lie that more stuff will make you happy? You're better off on your own. I don't need people. Life's getting uncomfortable because people know me too well in this church, so what's the option? Let's go find another church, baby. And I just church hop all around. Where are you believing the lie that status and importance is what you need rather than just wisdom in Scripture? Friends, good is better than evil, contentment is better than riches, two are better than one, wisdom is better than prominence, and actions are better than words. This is a very simple text, but simple doesn't mean easy. In order to live this way, we need the the empowering grace of the Holy Spirit in our lives to live according to how God has asked us to live in this world. Heavenly Father, may we be people who believe the truth and hold to the truth. May we be those who follow you and are content with what you've called us to be and do. May you make us practical people of the word. May we know you better and love you more.